If you would please open your Bibles with me now to Hebrews chapter 1. Today we are going to continue to study the remainder of Hebrews chapter 1 by looking at verses 4 to 14. But I do want us to begin by reading the entire chapter together. These are the words of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. I am a, a far, far cry from an English teacher, and I'm not a very good writer either. My beautiful wife Ashley and many others in this room are, are far better grammaticians than I am. I honestly pity all of you for having to listen to me week in and week out. But listen, even in my grammatical and literary weaknesses, even I am aware that the use of too many superlatives is an unhelpful thing in writing. It is an immature writer that says, yesterday was the greatest day ever when the sun was shining the brightest I had ever seen, when I ate the best ice cream I had ever eaten, and when I felt the most happy that I had ever felt. It's not good writing. Now, don't get me wrong, that does not keep me from using many superlatives. As you know, I am a superlative kind of guy. If you knew me as a kid, you would have heard me say that Bruno's Pizza on Route 9 was the best pizza ever created by God, that Larry Bird was the best three-point shooter of all time, that I was the best ping-pong player of all time, 
and that New Jersey was the best state in the union. And you all would have rolled your eyes and told Joel to calm down. Even today, if you were to read my manuscripts in front of me on a Sunday morning, you would see a whole lot of capital letters, emboldened letters, a lot of exclamation marks, a lot of uses of the words best and most, and maybe my favorite, the the greatest. And there's nothing wrong with superlatives, particularly when you are talking about the best and most beautiful and greatest savior this world has ever known. There's nothing wrong with superlatives, but listen, the danger of superlatives, particularly when it is not just a matter of opinion, but a matter of reality regarding our Savior, the danger is that we can quickly agree with them, but not appropriately respond to them. When I use superlatives to talk about Jesus, hopefully all of you don't roll your eyes and just say, well, Jesus, or well, Joel is talking excitedly again. Hopefully you agree with what I'm saying, but the use of too many superlatives might not necessarily grab you in the same way. And friends, I say all of this to point out that I I believe the writer of Hebrews to be a much better writer than myself. The the writer of Hebrews is, is not above using superlatives, but he is more in favor of using comparatives. He knows that we would all probably agree emphatically that Jesus is the greatest. But, but he wants us to consider more slowly and, and more intentionally together how in being the greatest, Jesus is also better than that over there. And in being the greatest, he's better than that over there and greater than the things and, that we see in front of us here. The writer of Hebrews is taking us on a 13-chapter journey to rediscover that Jesus is indeed the best, but not just that he's the best. In being best, he is better than this and that and that over there. D.A. Carson says of the book of Hebrews, sometimes rhetorically comparative is more powerful than superlative. And I think that that is true. And I think that it serves our souls because it causes us to consider more intentionally how in some ways we have subtly begun to value other things as better than Jesus. Our superlatives might remain in place. We might sing loudly, Jesus is the best. But our practical living might actually demonstrate comparatively that we believe other things to be better than him. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to see in a very clear way that Jesus is better than it all. And that you and I will be more content and more happy and more secure when we actually live as if he is. If you look at verse 4, you will see the word superior. Uh, It is the first use of the Greek word, which is kraton, and it it means better or superior. And the writer will use it repeatedly throughout this book. And friends, today he he begins by entering into an extended argument for how Jesus is kraton, how Jesus is better or superior to angelic beings. Chapters 1 to 2 are all about Jesus' superiority to angels. And listen, I know that this might not seem immediately relevant or important to your Christian walk this week. What relevance do angels have? But I actually think it has remarkable relevance. The writer of Hebrews is resolved 
to correct a wrong and dangerous way of thinking that was present in that day towards angels and that I honestly believe is present in this day, not just towards angels, but also towards every other area of spirituality that we can fix ourselves upon. We need to be grounded by what he says in these verses. The main idea for our sermon this morning is this. Jesus is better than angels and all other forms of security. Jesus is better. We have three points. Number one, a better name. Number two, a superior existence. And number three, a loftier role. Let's begin with the first point. Point number one is a better name. Now, now before we begin to study how Jesus has a better name than the angels, I, I think we do need to spend just a, a few more minutes considering why this topic and this comparison to angels is even relevant to us. Why does the author of Hebrews begin this 13-chapter argument about Jesus' superiority with a discussion about angels? It doesn't seem relevant right away, but it is. Because the way that the first century Christians were tempted to think about angels is very similar to the way that we think about many things in our lives and in this world today. Listen, the original audience of this text, they were severely tempted to overvalue angels and to undervalue Jesus Christ. It actually seems that in the first century, Jewish converts and other Christians as well were very tempted to even worship angelic beings. Paul the Apostle had to warn the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, when he said, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. Seems like it was an issue. People, Christians, were tempted to overvalue angelic beings. And listen, probably... For good reason. Angelic beings are impressive. Throughout God's word, angelic beings provided powerful and extremely spiritual experiences for God's people. Truly, to encounter an angelic being was in some sense to have an encounter with with God himself. Angels were so powerful and and so beautiful and and magnificent that they, they regularly, when they appeared to someone, had to quickly forbid that person from worshiping them then and there. And not just their appearance. Listen, in the context of our text today, even as last week we we saw that God had spoken in many ways and in many times by the prophets. Listen, angelic beings were often very connected to God's spoken revelation to God's people as well. God spoke through angels just like he did through the prophets. In fact... In fact, it is assumed that angels might have even been on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, helping to give the law of God to Moses. Because in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says about the law of God, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And so God often spoke through angels. Angels in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, right? With the coming of the Messiah, with Jesus coming to earth, there was a sudden increase of angelic activity among God's people. Angels appeared to Mary and they appeared to Joseph and to the shepherds and to Zechariah and to others. And so as the writer of Hebrews began to talk about how Jesus is a superior word of God than he gave through the prophets the writer of Hebrews seems to be very intentionally extending that important truth beyond just the prophets towards the angelic beings as well. And friends, I really, really do think that this is relevant for us today. 
Not necessarily because we idolize or worship angels in the same way that they did. Although I will say this, I do think that some Christians today have an unhealthy preoccupation with angels and with demons. That is a concern. But, but more than that, I think that many of us idolize and, and worship certain types of experiences more than Jesus himself. We think that we need to hear from God in a, in a very specific way and that Jesus himself is not present if we don't encounter him in that way. We, we within even the church of Christ can be over-spiritual and even mystic sometimes in the way that we think about Jesus. If we come to church and, and the music didn't move us in the way that we hoped that we, it would, then we assume that Jesus is not as present today as he was last week. If spiritual gifts or certain kinds of spiritual gifts in particular are not front and center in every Christian's life, well, then we assume that Jesus is less present in their lives. We, so many of us, so many of us assume that Jesus is less present in the grind of life, that he's less present in the, the sufferings of our lives than he is in a miraculous healing. But nowhere in God's word does he say that he's more present in one over, over the other. I think that many in the church are dangerously close to worshiping experiences rather than Jesus himself for who he is and what he's done. And there are other ways that we do this as well, right? We can idolize certain relationships in the church as being important for us to encounter Christ. Relationships in the congregation, even pastors as those who need to help us to encounter Jesus. And obviously biblical fellowship and pastoral ministry are hugely important. But it is a concern if in valuing them we in any way lower our expectation that Christ is sufficient for all things. Many of the original audience would have considered angels to be a source of protection and a source of strength in life, even more than Jesus. And we can do that as well, can't we? We look to politics or to a specific political party to be our protection. We look to finances. We, we spend way too much time considering the conspiracy theorists and, and the hidden agendas of people in power as if figuring that out is really going to help us more than considering Christ rather than spending time looking at him. Christian, if you do not have confidence that, that Jesus alone can give you all the help that you need in your messy life, if you do not have confidence that you can approach him boldly without any assistance from others, the writer of Hebrews has grave concern for your soul. And so what does he begin to do? Well, he shows us that Jesus is superior to everything else that we might put our hope and our security in. And he begins to show us that with the simple fact that Jesus has a better name. Look again at verse 4. He says that Jesus has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So he wants to make a comparison, and he, he wants to make a stark contrast, and he, he begins to do so by highlighting the, the name that has been given to Jesus. And we see what that name is in verse 5, when it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The writer of Hebrews says that, that Jesus has a superior name, and it's not even his name or his title, Jesus or Christ. It is that Jesus is called by God the Son. 
This is so significant. There are, there are a few times in Scripture when angelic beings are called the sons of God, a few times, but no single angel is ever spoken of as the son of God. Why? Well, because the son of God, the title, the son of God, biblically speaking, that, that is to be given as only the highest honor. To be the Son of God, is a, it shows a, a special familial relationship to God the Father. It, it speaks of authority and inheritance. A, a father and a, a son have a special relationship. They relate differently than others. A father might have employees or workers or acquaintances, but his son is different from them all. When Jesus was baptized, he came out of the water and God the Father said, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. The term Son speaks of pleasure and delight and honor and solidarity. But, but we have to understand the term Son rightly. When, when we speak of God the Son, when we speak of Jesus, we're not speaking of the Son as created or birthed in some strange way by God the Father. Listen, Jesus was not created. He is eternal with the Father. Scripture is explicitly clear. Even Jesus declares that he shares eternality with the Father. So when we even see in verse 5 him say, you are my Son, today I have begotten you, it's not speaking of creation or a birthing. No, it's speaking of being given a new place of honor and position. Jesus is, according to verse 6, the, the firstborn of creation. Not in the sense that he was born, but in the sense that he now has a unique and unparalleled place of honor. And so what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's saying, friends, it's not bad to like angels. It's not bad to value them and to see them as beautiful and as powerful or even as important or even to desire to see one of them. But if you ever begin to think that angels or, or any other type of experience can give you access to God or to greater protection in your life better than Jesus, then you've forgotten who Jesus is. Look at verse 6. It says that the difference between Jesus and, and angels is so great that the angels are actually commanded to worship him. Jesus is God. And he has a distinct relationship with the Father like none other Christian, non-Christian. If you want to experience God, pursue Jesus. Not angels not mystical spiritual experiences, not therapy, not politics, not any other human or spiritual form of security, pursue Jesus. There's a story of Abraham Lincoln and his son, Tad, that during the affairs of war and Abraham Lincoln's busyness, uh, Tad was sitting out on the street when a soldier came up and wanted access to the president because he had a request regarding his family. And so he walked up to the White House, but he was turned away because of Abraham Lincoln's busyness. And so he returned to the street, sat down next to a young boy, and complained of what had just happened. And when Tad, Abraham Lincoln's son, heard of what just happened, he said, please come with me. And he grabbed his hand and he walked him over the lawn, back towards the White House, up the stairs of the White House, through the doors, past all the war messengers and all the war officials, right into the presence of Abraham Lincoln, and said, Dad, this man wants to talk to you. He had a relationship with the Father like no other. Jesus has a relationship with the Father like none other. 
Point number two, a superior existence. And so after, after speaking about Jesus having a better name than the angels, the writer begins to talk about Jesus' power and permanence and preeminence, which is also greater than the angels. Look, look at verse 7 with me. He says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. When the writer of Hebrews talks about the angels as, as winds and as flames of fire, he is actually quoting Psalm 104. Psalm 104 is a psalm all about the greatness of God and specifically the greatness of God as seen in his creative power. Psalm 104 talks about God causing the grass to grow and mountains to exist and the moon to shine and the lion to roar. That's what Psalm 104 is all about. And it ends by saying, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them. The earth is full of your creatures. That's Psalm 104. And so putting the quote of Psalm, or I'm sorry, of verse 7 into its original context of Psalm 104, listen, it helps us to understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying. We're, we're not really supposed to focus on the strange words, winds and, and flames of fire. That's not the point here. We're supposed to focus on the words, he makes his angels. The writer of Hebrews is citing Psalm 104 to show that Jesus has a superior existence to angels because he existed before them and he, in fact, created them. Angels are, are created beings along with lions and mountains and grass. But Jesus is the creator. There's a reason why even angels are supposed to worship Jesus because he spoke them into existence. And even as we learned last week, right now he is actively speaking them, sustaining them through his word of power. But the writer of Hebrews not only highlights Jesus' creative power compared to the angels, he highlights the permanence of Jesus and his power. Look at verse 8. It says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. The writer of Hebrews wants to highlight the, the eternality of, of the sun. You can see the word forever used twice in verse 8. Circle, you could start circling the, that word forever because you're going to see it used throughout the book of Hebrews. In verse 9, he says that this King Jesus' reign will last beyond his companions, meaning that King Jesus, and listen, he really wants us to think of him as a king. He speaks of his throne and of his scepter. He wants us to see that this King Jesus is more permanent than angels and even more permanent than the kings of Israel that came before him. See, this passage is filled with seven Old Testament quotes and, and all of them, most of them, as found here, are, are sightings of enthronement passages from the Old Testament. They're Old Testament passages that were used for the enthronement or for the coronation of Israel's kings. And they speak loudly of God reigning in the world through his chosen king. But the problem is that no king of Israel had ever reigned in the way that God promised that they would reign. One of the quotes, as, in, as seen in verse 5, is directly quoted from 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
you're trying to get an understanding of your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a big deal because it is the Davidic covenant where God promises King David that one of his sons would rule over the throne forever and ever. But sadly, that had never happened. It didn't happen through David or through Solomon or any of their grandsons, any of the kings that reigned after them. And so God's promise of an eternal kingdom It was still waiting to be fulfilled. But listen, what the writer of Hebrews is saying by citing all of these enthronement passages is that all of the Old Testament texts were not looking to Solomon or David at all. They were ultimately looking to King Jesus. Jesus, who was born of Mary and Joseph from the tribe of Judah, which is the tribe of David. If you remember in Matthew chapter 1, at the beginning of the Gospels, Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus back to King David. Why? To show that he is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Jesus is in the kingly line of David. God had not broken his promises from 2 Samuel 7. No, he sent his son to be the new king of his people. And in sending his son, he was sending a king who would reign forever and ever and ever. Church, Jesus, God the Son, has been anointed with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. He's unlike any other king or ruler that this world has ever known. His reign is a glad and happy reign. It is a just reign. He hates wickedness and abhors unrighteousness. Jesus is better than the angels because he is the perfect king and he will reign forever. To worship angels... (laughs) To look for other things to give us strength and security is utter folly because we have a king who has stepped off of his throne into our world, died for our sins, defeated our greatest enemy, and now reigns at the Father's right hand. And he says of you that you are brothers and sisters to him and that you have access to the Father through his completed work. The angels can't do that for you. Your political leaders can't do that for you. Your money can't get it done. Only Jesus can get it done. In Psalm 102, after speaking of the eternal reign of God, the final verse of Psalm 102 says, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. You can dwell secure because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is better than angels or any other form of security. He has a better name. He has a superior existence. And finally, point number three, Jesus has a loftier role. Angels are a big deal. They really are. Hebrews chapter 12 says that in heaven, There are innumerable angels in festal gatherings. The shepherds in the fields, it says, saw a host of angels from heaven. That's a military term. There are more angels created by God than you and I could ever count. They are a bigger army than humanity has ever seen. If they were suddenly to stand before us in rank and file, the sight of their military presence and power would extend beyond what our eyes could see. Angels are truly powerful and truly significant and magnificent by God's design. If you see the host of heaven before you, you're going to want to join their side. 
you might think, that's the ultimate expression of power. Look at that army. I want to be on their side. I would. But, but look at what the writer of Hebrews says next in verses 13 to 14. It says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a, a footstool for your feet? Listen, are they, speaking of angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Do you see what he's saying? I actually think he's saying it with a little bit of sarcasm in his voice. He's saying, as amazing as you think these things are, do you know what they fundamentally are? They're messenger boys. That's what the word angel means. It means messenger or, or envoy. The angelic beings, as, as many as they are, as powerful as they're messenger boys sent out to serve. And guess what? Guess who they're sent out to serve? It says that they're sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Who's that? That's us. <laughs> the innumerable angels that exist are sent out by God to serve us. That, that's amazing. And in two weeks, we're going to consider how amazing it is that we as men and women have been given even more dignity than the angelic beings. It is amazing that they have been sent out to serve us. But listen now. That is not the point of this text. The point of this text is not to focus on who they were sent out to serve, but rather who does the sending. And it's the Son. The Son has authority and dominion over the entire host of heaven. Look at verse 13. It says that it is the Son who sits at the right hand of the throne of God. It's the Son, not angelic beings, who hold the scepter in his sand. It is the Son. He, he holds the sovereign scepter over the universe, and he can say to the host of heaven, go there. He holds the scepter in his hand, and he can say to half of them, you go over here and do this. And to the rest of you, you know what? I need you to go over there right now. And you know what? The rest of you, I just need you to sit still for a bit. That's what he has ability to do. What a loftier role. He commands angels where to go. And so, church, consider this. The king of heaven, the one that Isaiah says his train, the train of his robe filled the temple the one to whom all angelic beings shout out, holy, holy, holy. The, the one to whom angels run to do his bidding. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. This one, this king of kings, stood up from his throne. And he entered into our world as a little baby. Can you imagine what the hosts of heaven were thinking? They've been worshiping him for millennia, and they're seeing him on his throne in his rightful place, and suddenly King Jesus stands up. Um, what's happening? Why, why is the king standing? He's, he's been saying, why is he standing now? What is he going to do? Oh, he must be ready to give a new edict. He must be ready to send us out to defeat all of those bad enemies out there. But he doesn't say anything. The king quietly stands up and he, he takes off his crown and hosts of angels run to hold it for him. He un he unbuckles his robe and hosts of angels run to make sure it doesn't touch the ground. 
He takes a step forward and legions of angels part the way, letting him pass, but saying, where is he going? Is he leaving the throne room of heaven? But that's exactly what he's doing. This king steps down out of heaven and he steps into our world. Can you imagine what the host of heaven must have been thinking when he stepped out and stepped in as a little baby? But he did it because he knew that the enemy of sin and death could not be destroyed with the power of an angelic army. No, the enemy of our souls, which is sin and death, could only be destroyed through a just act of divine mercy, through a sacrificial death, for the wages of sin is death. And so King Jesus himself stands up, and he walks forward, and he enters in, and he begins to live in flesh. Why? So that he might die in flesh, and so that he might rise in flesh. He defeated our enemy once and for all. Friends, think about what this has accomplished for us. As the one who was fully God from before the beginning of time and who now has become fully man, he has dealt a death blow to our enemies. His sovereign kingly power and rule has accomplished what we could never accomplish or what no angel or any other being in this universe could accomplish. Consider what he has done. Consider the images of of verses 10 to 14. It, It says that the earth and the universe that he has made, it says it in in verse 11, it says that they are perishing. Why? They're perishing because of sin. The universe is perishing because of our rebellion. The world is broken. It is perishing. This world that we live in is is marked by the fallenness of humanity. In this this broken world, we feel sorrow and death daily. We, We deal with abuse. We see political corruption and economic ruin. We have immoral pastors and divisive churches. We have cancer and chronic pain and the torment of infertility. The world is perishing because of sin. Verse 11 says that it is like a garment that is wearing out. Don't you feel that, friend? Don't you look at the world and say, man, it's, it's looking like a really worn out garment. I'm seeing holes through the whole thing. It's dirty and dusty. It's, it's old. It's not what it should be. But look at verse 12. He says that that while this world is wearing out like a garment, Jesus, who remains the same from one day to the next, is ultimately going to roll it up. He says it's kind of like a a beach towel. When you're on the beach and the the towel gets sandy, you get up and you just kind of whip it off and all the sand goes flying off. There is a day coming when Jesus is ultimately going to reach down and he's going to roll up this earth in the way that we currently know it. And he's going to shake off all of the pain, all of the sorrow, all of the hurt, all of the tears. He's going to say, it's done. I am king and I will have my perfect world for myself. There's a day coming when when Jesus is going to reach down and he's going to take the the drop cloth that he's been using and all the the sin and the corruption that is on. He's going to roll it up. He's going to put it in a ball, and it's going to be a footstool for his feet. And he's going to sit back, and he's going to see the glorious creation that he has made and even more importantly, the redemption that he has accomplished. King Jesus, 
reigns over all. Friends, we got to use some superlatives. Jesus is the greatest hope that we have. He is the best security that can be found. He is the supreme savior for his people. There's nothing that compares to him. He is the most faithful, isn't he? He is the most loving, isn't he? He is the most just, isn't he? He is the most merciful and the most secure hope that we have. Nothing, nothing compares to him. Christian, nothing can give you greater security than Jesus. He is better than everything else. He is better than any emotional or spiritual experience that you can conjure up in your own strength or manipulate in your own mind. Just keep looking at Jesus. Let his spirit stir affections for you. You know, as I was studying and preparing and praying, I just, Lord, what does, what does application of this text look like? How do we read Hebrews 1 and turn and obey as you call us to do in response to your word? What does obedience look like? Here's what I think it looks like. Consider him. Pay, chapter 2, verse 1, much closer attention to him. Give your life to focus on him. Stop lending your ear to other voices. His voice is better than your political leaders. His voice is better than your social commentator. His voice is better than your family. His voice is better than your own conscience. His voice is better. And so listen to Jesus. Psalm 2 ends, it's an enthronement text. It speaks of God laughing at the nations below him who are rebelling against him. And the end of Psalm 2, the application is kiss the son. In other words, bend your knee and give loyalty to him. Kiss the son. An obedient response to Hebrews chapter 1, dear friends, is to honor him by resting in him and by listening to him. If you are not a Christian here today, the response to all that you have heard for these 40 minutes is to bend your knee to King Jesus because there's nothing else that can save you. Obedience to this text might look like confessing things that you have given your allegiance to that are lesser than Christ. I would encourage you to do that with friends and family even this afternoon. Obedience to this text means to crown him Lord of heaven. He is enthroned in worlds above. Crown him with many crowns. Let me have you stand with me as I read these lyrics. Church, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee, and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Redeemer family, crown him the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. 
Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands inside. Rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. No angels in the sky can fully bear that sight. But downward bends their burning eye at mysteries so bright. Crown him the Lord of years. Omnipotent of time. Creator of the rolling spheres. Ineffably sublime. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Awake our souls and sing. Amen.